0: Joined from Cape Cod by my partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Elliot, welcome from the
1: Cape. Uh, Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I I have to say there are very few things that would take me away from a crystalline uh, New England Day, where I just swam back and forth across a pond and was skipping through the breakers on the ocean side of Wellfleet. But but to be here with Peter Fever and with you, uh, I mean, I would miss anything for that.
0: Well, I think you should introduce our guest, since he was your two T at Harvard. So you're responsible um, <laughs> for all of well, I, his, wait, wait. all of his ideas, good and bad.
1: I, I was just a year or two, uh, year or two ahead of him, and so you know. Like, like one of those awful private schools where the, you know, the upperclassmen get to beat up the ones who are one or two years below them. But Peter has forgiven me, I think. So um, our friend Peter Fever, and he really is our friend, he's been on this podcast before, is one of the country's leading experts on civil military relations. He's a professor at Duke University. He is, however, also unusually somebody who's um, from academia, who has seen a lot of the world of practice, including Serving and on the National Security Council staff as one of the, as I guess the main strategic planner, um, in two tours Michigan on the National Security Council staff two tours, yes, uh, and served as a naval reservist, which is probably not irrelevant to the topic of the book, um, All around Good Guy, uh, which doesn't mean that we will give him an easy time. we will not, uh, who has just written a very interesting book called "Thank you for Your Service." Um, it's a as as you said, Eric, a data rich uh, study of civil military relations. I'm I'm going to begin just by framing it and then throwing it to you, Peter, to kind of take open up the discussion. Um, I think one of the points you make, which is a great point, is the um, the American public, by and large, although there's been some slippage recently, has a quite a high view of the American military, particularly in comparison with other institutions in American society. And what's what's equally interesting is the one thing that they may know about the military is that everybody else thinks that way too. So uh, why don't you take that and uh, run with it for a bit?
2: Well, thanks, and, and it's I'm honored. I, I think I'm a, a triple offender, three strikes and I'm out, uh, but thank you for having me back. I I must say, also, thank you, Elliot, for your generous blurb. You blurbed the book. And uh, when I first read your blurb, I thought you said Peter is one of academe's most cute observers. And I thought, oh, that's a very flattering thing. Then I read it again. No, it's acute observers. I'll I'll take it either way. But uh, the the point you uh, flagged at the outset is an important one. This is a social fact. The idea of that. The public has high esteem in the military. This is a social fact that is known by other Americans, and it's one of the few things they know about the the military. When you probe detailed questions, you get uh, either the I don't know response or you get wild guesses that are wrong. It's also one of the few things that the military knows about American public opinion. So I bet you've had the experience. You really can't have a conversation with a senior military leader that goes past five minutes before they'll point out <laughs> that the military is held in high esteem. It's something the military cares about, and the book says they're right to care about it. I The book also reminds people that it was not always so. So it's not as if since the founding of the Republic, Americans have held the professional military in high esteem. I would say the normal the the for most of our history we held the citizen soldier in high esteem the one who answered the call of the bugle and rushed, rushed to rescue the country but then went home to the farm plow and the professional military who served during peacetime that was they were not held in high esteem uh that <coughs> created a crisis after uh, the shift to all volunteer force when we had to recruit people into this so called low esteem Service uh, for an extended period of time, and I think the pivot point in the the chrono- chronology is the Reagan era, when Reagan rebuilt confidence in the military and was able to, uh, you know, have that confidence be extended to the professional military, not just to the uh, wartime military. And that's uh, that's more or less held true for the last uh, four decades. How, how
1: healthy is that degree of esteem and that awareness on the part of the military about it? Because on the one hand, obviously, you do want to have people appreciate the sacrifices that some military people make, not all military people, let's remember. Um, but on the other hand, uh, and I'll betray my own views, I think there are also pernicious consequences from this, including a degree of escaping real accountability? Or am I being too harsh?
2: Well, so there's really two questions you can ask from the skeptic's eye. One is it's high, but will it remain high? And I'm of the view that says it's it's high, but hollow. Of course, in the last several years, it's gone down. And and we can dig into that in a moment if you want. The other skeptic's question is the one you asked, which is, "It's high, but is that a good thing?" And my view is that uh, it comes with some positives and it comes with some negatives. Uh, and all in all, the pos- positives outweigh the negatives. And I would rather have the problems we have with American high esteem of the military than the problems that, say, Canada might have or. Some of our NATO partners have with low esteem of a military that they need for national security purposes. There are things that are worse, (laughs) even amongst our, you know, advanced industrial democracies. There are civil military problems that are worse than the ones we have here. But you do put your finger on one of the downsides. When you put the military, when you hold the military in such high esteem, you're putting them on a pedestal. And in the book, I talk about pedestalization. When you put someone on a pedestal, they are up there looking down and potentially looking down on you. And it's an invitation, an opportunity for alienation on both ends. You know, you have unreasonable expectations of them. And then when they fail, you knock them down uh, and trample on them. But up there, if they're on the pedestal, they they can avoid... Uh, some of the um, messiness that comes from being uh, down amongst the rest of us. And and in the book, I particularly draw attention to uh, what I call the partisan blame game, which is uh, an opportunity that the military have to play off of their high status and avoid accountability, uh, avoid some of the tough scrutiny for operational challenges or even outright failures that happened on their watch. And and so when the military is held in high esteem, that's easier to play that game. And uh, that's a cost of high. Eric,
1: you had to live that. Do you want to? Yeah. I want
0: to, I want to dig into some of this with you, Peter. So one of the points you make in the book is that, uh, and, and for the benefit of our listeners, I think it's worth, explaining that uh, th- this is uh, based on two very large surveys uh, that uh, proprietary surveys that uh, you conducted in 2019 and 2020. But it also draws on a wealth of other data, Gallup polling, the national election, American National Election Survey data. There are lots of sources of data here. And as Elliot said, I, as I've mentioned, it's a very data rich book. But the the real, I mean, correct me if I've got it wrong, but from reading it, uh, the the real increase, I mean, you talked about the low esteem that the all-volunteer force faced in the wake of Vietnam and trying to recruit a force, then also problems of drugs, chief of staff of the army saying it was a hollow army, et cetera. The real two enormous uh, boosts to the public estimation of the military, were the first Gulf War uh, in in 1991, and then 9/11 and the uh, deployment of the U.S. military into the uh, wars against uh, terrorists that followed on from from that. But to to, to dig into what Elliot was just saying. The public also seems quite ambivalent about those wars, the, the endless wars, the forever wars. They were clearly inconclusive in the case of Afghanistan. It, it ended, you know, disastrously and tragically uh, in 2021. And yet I I would say, and, you know, from my own experience here that, you know, in the Pentagon, the military has really escaped from a lot of accountability. And and you found that there is this sort of immunity from prosecution, if you will, um, in the data about public attitudes. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. Uh, and let me just emphasize for our listener that the data was proprietary, but it's now available for anyone to download. So if you're a grad student looking for uh, something to write a paper on and you need to show off your a- statistical analytical chops, download this uh, these data files, because we've ju- the book just barely scratches the surface of, of what we got. But one of the things, surveying in 2020, it's which is before the Biden decision to leave, regardless of consequences, but still in the middle of President Trump's debate about or signaling that he wanted to leave Afghanistan, regardless of consequences. So the policy issue was available for the public to evaluate. And it was clear that the war in Afghanistan by 2020 was not going the way uh, we all hoped it would, you know, in the early 2002 timeframe and thought maybe it had a chance of going. What was interesting was when you dug into the respondents and disaggregated by whether they were Republican or Democrat or independent, and then asked them more specific questions about who should get blame? Who should get credit? You know, How did these people, how did our leaders do in the conduct of the war? So much more uh, nuanced questions than previous polls have asked. This odd pattern emerged where Democratic respondents would say, Democratic leaders did pretty well as did the military, but Republican leaders really screwed up the war. And then Republican <laughs> leaders would say, Republican leaders did pretty well, as did the military, but Democratic leaders screwed up. In other words, the partisans were willing to blame the other partisan civilian leader, but not blame the military. And if it was a question of giving credit, they would give credit to the military. If it was a question about blame, they give blame to the civilian leaders. Now, uh, as you know, you both served at senior levels as civilians. Civilians do make mistakes, so they they should be Absolutely. held
0: accountable. Absolutely, and I just I want to stipulate for all our listeners that I am not suggesting that civilians did not make mistakes, or uh, you know should not bear the right. plenty of share of the blame for things that went wrong in either of those two conflicts.
2: But what what the polling suggests is that the civilians do not enjoy any insulation beyond partisanship. Whereas the military enjoys an insulation from criticism uh, and possibly from accountability, uh, just by virtue, and, and they can sort of attach themselves to whichever is the the in, the insulated uh, partisan uh, civilian leader. Now, our polls weren't showing that the military was actively fomenting this, but our polls showed that the mil- this was available to the military when they're in the hot seat. And so that, you know, that is a a potential downside of high confidence because it could insulate the military. If I had money to do more surveys now, I'd wanna follow up because it's now two years after the disaster, disastrous departure. And what is the public thinking now about the military? My own guess would be that the military is still avoiding Uh, the, you know, suffering the most uh, blame and the decline in confidence is not really driven so much by Afghanistan as by other factors. But that's an empirical question worth investigating.
1: I mean, I agree with the basic conclusion, but I think I'd push the implications harder. I think it's it's extremely unhealthy because, look, when you had a draft-based military People saw the underside of the military. Military is a big complicated organization with a lot of wonderful people and a lot of not so wonderful people, and which does some things brilliantly well and some things, you know, that are just stupid or bizarre or incompetent or ineffective. And in a draft military, everybody knew that. I mean, hence cartoon strips like Beetle Bailey, which I don't I have no idea how that one survives, although it seems to, which is, you know, the army is seen from the point of view of a draftee, basically. And um, and I think the result was a kind of a healthy wariness. And I, whereas I, I really do feel that when we look at the Afghan and Iraq wars, um, although there were some very big successes, you know, I would think about the surge, which you played a role in, Peter. Um, you definitely did, Eric. I played maybe a minor role in it, but uh, I mean, it was a military military idea executed by by military people, so they're the ones who really deserve the Credit for, but you also had things which were appalling, and I'll I'll give you just one example. When I first went to Afghanistan for Secretary Rice in two thousand seven, and I, I was astonished. There were like seven different chains of command. There were like seven different wars. You had a an American force, um, uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. You had a NATO chain of command. You had the so-called White Special Operations Forces. They were fighting their own war. That's sort of the Green Berets. We had black special operations forces, in other words, Delta, the super secret ones. They're fighting their own war. CIA is fighting its own war. Uh, the people who were responsible for training the Afghan military, but were also conducting operations, they were fighting their war. And you know, when I when I talked to military people about that, and they well, and I said, what about this unity of command thing that you're already pre- always preaching? So, oh, no, 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 we coordinate just fine, which is exactly what the two commanders of Pearl Harbor said, by the way, after the attack when. Uh, and, you know, and there are similar things or other pieces of malpractice. So this will be a bit down in the weeds in both Afghanistan and Iraq, we rotated divisional headquarters. So these are very high level headquarters every year, which meant that you, that you obliterated any memory, institutional memory of what you had been doing. You incentivized people to drop their predecessors plans in favor of their own plans. But it, it caused all kinds of distortions. It was completely unnecessary. That was a military judgment. The civilians had nothing to do with it. And, it, it, you know, I felt it really had a deleterious effect on our conduct of the war. And I have not only have I not heard criticism of this from the outside, the thing that troubles me most is I don't think the United States military really kind of held up a mirror to itself after... The first decade or so in Afghanistan and Iraq saying where did we screw up? Because they most certainly did.
2: So there's two things here and the that are they're worth distinguishing. One is uh they're both drivers of public confidence, by the way. One is what I call patriotism, and that's the rally to the flag. So after 911, public confidence in the military went up immediately. Not because the military had done anything yet, but because we were in wartime, and so there's a rally effect. And and this rally effect is probably the number one pillar undergirding public confidence in the military. If you can only ask one question and you have to predict confidence, ask, are we at war or not? And if we're at war, public confidence is likely to be higher. If we're not, it's likely to be lower. The second, though, gets to the heart of what you were talking about, Elliot, and that's performance. Is the military good at the military mission? that it's doing. And here the poll results are pretty clear. That drives public confidence in the military. If you prime the public with information that the military is not doing well, you can drive down confidence. So it it does respond to bad news, Abu Ghraib, probably a little bit of a drop in confidence after those reports. Um, you can drive down public confidence, but the public has baked into its view of the military the idea that the military is very competent and is good at what it does. And so it's It's a view that's anchored and takes a fair bit of a push to drive it down. I'll just flag a third one because it's somewhat related, and that is ethical, professional ethics. The public likewise believes that the military is ethical in how it wields its uh, responsibilities, and if you prime the public to with information that suggests it's not ethical, then again you can drive down the the public confidence. And so the the public sort of starts with the view our military is good, good at what they do, they're ethical in what they do, uh, and then it's hard to move them, but not impossible to move them. And and I do think uh, that that a you know an unvarnished Assessment of the sort you were suggesting, Elliot, would uncover genuine criticisms, and it would have the effect of driving down confidence. I don't that that's a price worth paying. I think uh, for deservedness. My recommendation at the end of the book is the military should not worry about keeping public confidence high. It should worry about deserving high public confidence. That that's the that's the focus. And when they make mistakes. should own up
0: so peter let me let me poke at different elements of this so first you know the book makes a point that the public has a lot of difficulty seeing the military in you know sort of kind of granularity of detail so there's not a whole lot of distinction made between retired former senior officers who they see on, you know, television, you know, providing commentary on events with active duty. There's not that much distinction between senior officers and um, the enlisted personnel. Um, And the public doesn't seem to have you know, any kind of detailed grasp that would enable it, for instance, to make reasonable judgments about performance. You know, how how well did the military perform? On top of that, you have the phenomenon that uh, we talked about at the outset that you describe in some detail in the book, which clearly has an impact on confidence, which is the social uh, desirability uh, uh, bias um, of of saying, you know, thank you for your service, you know, honoring the military. All of which really does, you know, kind of... uh, Kind of uh, create this insulation for particularly for the senior uh, active duty military from from criticism for performance. Um, and I one of the, I guess I would say two things. One, to Elliot's point, there doesn't seem to have been a lot of self-reflection. I mean, there there have been efforts at lessons learned. There's been a very you know interesting and pretty good two-volume detailed history of the U.S. Army's performance in Iraq, for instance um but you don't get a sense that that has been really reflected on or even read by a lot of senior officers and you also have this um mean i would just i would take maybe not an issue but maybe just put one nuance into what elliot said earlier there does seem to be an awareness among junior officers that their seniors are not being held to account and that that came up a couple of times you know uh, while we were in office with articles appearing in um, professional military journals by active duty officers saying, "Hey, wait, how come no one got, you know, fired for some of these failures?" Um, and to his credit, I think Bob Gates, when he was SecDef, did try to bring some of that back a little bit by making some changes, uh, by essentially firing some people when things went wrong. But you know that, you know, what's so striking about what Gates did is how singular it was. And it really hasn't happened, you know, it didn't happen before, obviously his tenure really hasn't happened since. I I would invite either or both of you to comment on any of that.
2: Well, you're I agree with you that the that the public doesn't follow the issues closely enough for for it for these this level of granularity to shape its attitudes. The polls show that That the public can distinguish that knows that there is a difference between officer and enlisted or something knows in the abstract knows in the abstract there are different services but they're not closely following it and it and so their view of the military tends to be you know more of a blobby (laughs) moving like that that doesn't mean though that those differences aren't important and you you put your finger on it. One of the challenges senior leaders have is not maintaining public confidence, but maintaining confidence within the rank and file, uh, and and partly for the reasons that you identified. But I want to flag a second factor, which I think uh, may be even um, well, I won't say more impactful, but just as impactful, and that is the a change. Uh, really late in the Trump years, that tried to drive a wedge right between the senior military leaders and the rank and file. And he was messaging the public, he being President Trump. So he really was trying to shift the public's attitudes. And he wanted to say, public, don't have confidence in the generals, because they're criticizing me. Do have confidence in the rank and file who are keeping quiet, and I'm going to tell you they all support me. And so, that was a very unusual moment to have an American commander in chief sort of try to split, you know, uh, the public's views but, uh, between the senior leaders and the the rank and file. And the polling, which was done since my book, uh, confirms that he had some success. It's not just, of course, it wasn't just him making this message. Tucker Carlson. And other Republican leaders have echoed it as well. And the biggest drop in confidence has been among Republicans. And I think that I trace that back to this effort to by President Trump and others to sort of separate the military that doesn't seem to like Trump from the military that does seem to like Trump and create sort of a two-tier system for the public.
1: So I, I wanted to push a little bit further on that you know, first, one thing is, you know, it, it does strike me that the criticism that the military does get um, has nothing to do with military competence. So if it's on the right, it's so oh, the military is woke. There is a very quite significant uh, critique on the left, which has had real consequences, which is the military doesn't deal with um, sexual offenses and, um, you know, is, is inequitable to women and, and stuff like that. And that's actually had real consequences in terms of pulling... Uh, certain kinds of investigations and um, uh, disciplinary procedures out of the the normal chain of command. So, I, one question I suppose I have for you is: Are those norms shifting? I mean, in particular, setting aside—well, it's hard to set aside Trump, but to the extent one can, I mean, it, it, it is striking to me that someone like DeSantis, and there are, I think, other politicians as well, are now willing to be openly critical of the military. For being "quote unquote" woke, um, and you, you know, in a certain way, it's almost criticizing them for being unmanly. I mean, that's the, the kind of the, to be perfectly honest, that's the subtext uh, there. They're you know, they're not they um, they they're, they're not heroic figures. Now, he hasn't been able to translate that into a critique of actual military competence because I don't think it works. But but it, it's striking that it's there, and I, I so I wonder if well Ted Cruz think...
0: Elliot Ted Cruz explicitly made that um, argument. Remember, he he was the one who put the video of the Russian military engaging in exercises up and saying, "Oh look at this manly military as opposed to our feminized military because it's so woke," you know, and you can see how well that masculine military has performed in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, I mean that. But still, I mean, it is it is striking that that's now changed. The military is fair game in the culture wars Um, on both on both sides, primarily from the right. But there is but there is some from the left. Is that significant? Or do you think that that's just, you know, this is more the afterwash of of Trump?
2: No, this is this, this. Well, certainly part of the afterwash of Trump. I think he accelerated and transformed and created permission space for Republicans to do things that in a previous, uh, era only the most extreme, you know, nut wing of Republicans would ever dare to say some of the things that are now coming out of, you know, senior Republican, um, voices, uh, that, so there, I don't think we can diminish or we can minimize, I should say, Trump's, uh, Role, but I think it fits into a larger uh, phenomenon, would, which I would call the politicization of the military, uh, and that is mostly done to the military by civilians. Although occasionally, as we've talked about in a previous podcast, the the military can be sloppy or you know allow themselves to be politicized, or in the case of retired military officers campaigning in. Uh, for on behalf of presidential candidates, they can be actively politicizing themselves. But what happens in this politicization and what the polling suggests is that the public looks at the military and says, the military is politicized when they agree with my the opposite party. So Democrats say, when the military agrees with me, Say it's uh, implementing, you know, uh, strong policies designed to recruit all Americans from all walks of life. What Democrats would call DEI policies. Okay, then the military is not being politicized. But when it's agreeing with the other uh, party, then it's being politicized. And of course, Republicans do the same. And that's what the the Republican critique of woke is: is it's a it's attacking the military. Using a civilian cultural war context, and it's very bad for the military. Uh, and I have a norm that I'm trying to get out there, which is let's give the military non-combatant immunity in the culture wars. Let's have them, you know, not be combatants, so they can't be targeted. Uh, so the Republicans should stop targeting them, as say Tuberville is doing with his hold, but. The Democrats can't hide behind them. You know, if they have a culture, uh, a a policy that's controversial, it should be civilians who are defending it, not the military. And then the military have to learn how to talk about this, these issues without triggering, without sounding like they're culture warriors. It, it's a, it's a norm that I think we need to take hold to push back against what is otherwise just a tidal wave of pressure politicizing the military. Over time, I think it's going to uh undermine public confidence in the military. It hasn't done so automatically because of this partisan effect where people will say, well, as long as they're agreeing with me, then I'm not going to consider them politicized. But that's a that's a I believe temporary, and over time, if the military gets in this game, it's going to you know spiral them down, as happened with the Supreme Court.
1: Just one quick follow-up on that. You know, I, I wonder, though, if that's really feasible, because at the end of the days, militaries have to reflect at some level the values of the society they come from. There are, we have, you know, uh, some recent cases of things like gays in the military, large scale integration of women in the military before that racial integration of the military. You know, you could have said, well, look, can't the military be exempt from these large and divisive issues that the society is wrestling with? And the answer was, you could. The military could adjust to them slower than perhaps the rest of society. Although in the case of racial integration, it actually led rather than than followed. Uh, not really in the case, I think, of of women or or homosexuals. But you know, at some level, isn't that isn't that truce always bound to break down?
2: Yes, at, uh, I would say there's a difference between aligning with cultural values to include the evolution in cultural values, which is what you're talking about. And I agree. Yes, the military has to if it gets too far out of step, then uh, it has a problem, especially in an all volunteer, sorry, in all recruited force, where it needs to draw from the same civilian society. But that's different from what we're seeing, you know, in the summer of 2023. Where there's an active culture war dimension that that goes, I think, beyond what you were uh, just referencing. I, I think there's a way that the military can evolve without becoming a um, uh, a victim of of the culture wars. The it's also the case that if there's a problem in civilian society, it will show up in the military. If there's a suicide problem in civilian society, it'll show up in the military. Drug problem, it'll show up in the military. Sexual assault, it'll show up in the military. That doesn't mean that we can tolerate it in the military at the same levels that we, as a society, unfortunately tolerate those ills in our civilian society because the military has a special role. And so we, we are right to hold the military to a higher standard of suicide prevention, a higher standard of sexual assault, uh, sexual harassment prevention. We the, we can't say, well, Azas as are no worse than the average college. We're not going to deal with it. No, we have to. The average college needs to reform, but the military desperately needs to reform in order to keep its uh, to be mission effective. And at the end of the day, that's sort of the the the. Oc- Occam's razor that comes back to cut through, should we go this way or that way? There's a genuine mission that the military has to meet. And will this foster the mission or will it undermine it? The reason the military cares about integrating Americans from all walks of life is unit cohesion matters. And if you can't integrate the people, if they can't trust each other in the foxhole, then they're not going to be mission effective. And it turns out you can get folks from all different walks of life to trust each other in the foxhole, provided that you are training and um, supporting them correctly.
0: So, Peter, you know, you talked about the all-recruited force, and I would love uh, to hear you on how this whole set of issues we've just been discussing uh, impacts the the current recruiting crisis, right? I mean, uh, our... Our collective mutual friend, uh, Brian Lynn, has an article, I think, in Parameters in the most recent issue saying, ah, the recruiting issue is that we've always had this. It's nothing new. You know, it's not a, a you know, a new phenomenon, which at some level, of course, is correct. Um, and as you point out in the book, uh, recruiting has always been, you know, uh, co varied to some degree with economic conditions. Um, at least since the advent of the all-volunteer force in the late 70s. But it does strike me that this pattern of increasing criticism by Republicans who have had the highest support uh, for confidence in the military, the attack on the military as woke, uh, in addition to the economic situation, which is clearly uh, a major part of this, is partly responsible for driving this recruiting crisis because, uh, you know, people from largely from the South and from Republican leaning or conservative leaning families are not signing up as much as in the past. Uh, And that's that's so how do you parse out all of this, you know, and, and in terms of the recruiting problem in mean, all the services i think are missed their numbers except possibly maybe the marines marines the marines but everybody else numbers. has missed yeah. them
2: the, as they remind the, the, the <laughs>
0: marines may have made them but everybody else has yeah. missed them in the army by significant yeah. margins has missed
2: them so yeah the it is a the recruiting crisis is a crisis uh and if brian is saying it's not a crisis then i wouldn't uh He's not saying view. it's but not a crisis. Saying,
0: he's just saying we've had this crisis, right. before. It's, it's
2: crisis we've seen before. Yes, that's where I agree with him. It is a crisis, but it's a crisis we've seen before. And I'm of the view it's a crisis that can be managed. And I'd rather manage it than uh, break the all-volunteer force and go to a whole other form of, of uh, raising and maintaining, namely conscription. I think conscription is a cure worse than the disease. But what... I would distinguish between tier one causes and tier two causes. And the declining public confidence is a tier two, cause, not a tier one. Tier one, it's labor economics, first and foremost. Uh, it's also changing uh, generational changes in the approach to careers and and what they're looking for. And, you know, the youngest cohort, 18 to 24, who, of course, is the target for recruits, They want more flexibility. Uh, They want more autonomy. They, you know, one famous uh, story that recruiter told me was, you know, they asked, "Could I go do distance uh, work from home? Join the military and work from home?" Well, it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, So changes in, in generational changes in attitudes to what work conditions should look like covid was a and the the difficulty recruiters had to get access a big factor and then a fourth one that doesn't get a lot of attention has to do with the tracking of medical uh, conditions particularly the use of um, prescription drugs which is uh, was done that was not tracked as carefully before uh, and it was easy to get waivers now it's tracked more carefully and the the incidences of it have gone up post-COVID. And so now it's much harder to get wai- waivers. That's tier one.
0: Marijuana use also is gotten it away, despite the fact that it's legal in 44 states.
2: Yeah. So th- then tier two is things like the politicization and public confidence. because And the way they affect recruitment is through shaping the attitudes of the influencers. So there's not a lot of polling evidence to say that Somebody chose not to go into the military because they personally were afraid it was woke. Uh, There is evidence that people are less likely to recommend to their kid or to their, you know, if they're a coach, to their, uh, you know, athlete or whatever, to join the military when confidence goes down. And if they think that the military has, you know, is, you know, a leftist organization or something like that. So... those, uh, the confidence numbers affected, you know, on the margins by shaping the, the, the influencers, and then from the left there is evidence that a number of uh, individuals are not are not likely to join or have declined propensity to enlist for fear of exposure to sexual assault, sexual harassment, and and also. Did not wanting their daughters or their nieces or whatever to uh, to join, and so that problem the military needs to get a hold of and would affect uh, recruiting if they could, um, you know, change the reality and the public's. I would add one thing
0: reality. on the declining propensity to serve to the pretty comprehensive list that you just gave, which is at least what I hear from you know senior officials in the Department of Defense. There, there is. Uh, expressed by younger people in that age cohort, the sense that if you enter the military, you're going to come out damaged with PTSD or traumatic traumatic brain injury or what have you, which is, I guess, a part uh, you know of the you know long uh, kind of critique of the endless wars, but it's also a little bit uh, kind of temporally out of sync because we haven't really had. You know, large numbers of people in combat for you know a decade. I mean, we've we've had you know small groups of special forces in um, in Syria or Iraq and maybe in in places like Mali, but uh, and Niger, but not like it was in the first decade uh, after nine eleven. So I, that right. seems to be playing a
1: role here as well. Although you know, you 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 do have to. Um... Ask yourself as you watch the war in Ukraine. So, I think there was a report leaked that we now estimate that the Russians may have had about 300,000 dead and wounded, the Ukrainians, something 200,000 dead and wounded. You know, if, God forbid, we ever got into a really big war, I find it very hard to believe that you could wage that war with an all volunteer force. It's just you know i think one of the less hard lessons we're learning is is a quantitative one i was wondering since our uh, i mean we've been rattling along here i was wondering if we could shift to a different piece of civil military relations and that's um not so much the military and society or the military and elites but uh, the military at the very top and uh, political leaders and uh, Peter, um, I'll give away a minor secret. You and I belong to a, a small group of somewhat paranoid uh, students of civil military relations. We're always kind of comparing notes on uh, the latest, Trying to scare right. each other. <laughs> uh, trying to be each one, trying to be more pure than the other and maintaining uh, civilian authority and control. But, uh, um, you you know the the challenge is never really, I think, a uh, sort of outright defiance. I mean, even Douglas MacArthur, when you look closely at that case, that wasn't it. It's a bit more subtle. So I, I wanted to just do a little bit of a lightning round with you and 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 with you, Eric, since Lord knows you had to live this. So uh, recently, um, just like a day or two before we uh, take this, the uh, commander of U.S. Air Forces in uh, Europe and Africa said that, well, the Ukrainians really won't be able to master the use of F-16s for five years. Now, uh, first, that's a professional judgment, which I think is open to dispute. But quite apart from that, that is a statement which ha- can have real political consequences in terms of you know what sort of support for Ukraine. Do we go ahead and give them F-16s? Uh, to actually, to buy, if I can ask both of you, thumbs up, thumbs down, is that appropriate or inappropriate?
2: I'll let Eric go first.
1: (laughs) You know,
0: look, part of the problem is, you know, on a lot of these issues, and this is something that the three of us have talked about before, at the very senior levels, the line between what is a professional military judgment and what is a political judgment is very blurred. You know, I mean, I mean, in addition to the example you just gave, Elliot, you could also adduce the example not long ago of General Minahan, who, you know, was saying we're going to be going to war with China, you know, in the next couple of years, which may or may be may or may not be right. You know, I mean, I I'm, I mean, I tend to be, you know, as it goes with China, I tend to be on the more alarmist side of the spectrum, by and large, but. Whether it was appropriate for, you know, a four star to say that um, publicly, you know, or in an unclassified setting. I mean, you know, that that I think is open to question as as well. My own view is that when when it comes to these kinds of statements. Senior military leaders would be well advised to take, you know, um, the advice uh, that Speaker Sam Rayburn um you know, once used to give to young politicians, and which I used to keep on an index card taped in front of me whenever I was testifying in front of the US Congress, which is nobody ever got in trouble for something they didn't say. You know, and and that goes, by the way, for civilian leaders as 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 well. I think there's far too much commentary nowadays, in part because of the ubiquity of the media, you know, in and around the decision making process. People ought not be saying things on the record and they ought not be saying things on background. I mean, there has been a, uh, Elliot, you and I have had some exchanges on Signal about this. Um, There's been a concatenation of background briefing in the Financial Times, New York Times, Washington Post of administration figures second guessing the Ukrainians, their offensive doing badly, they're not doing the right things, they've got their forces you know, uh, malapportioned. They shouldn't be in the South. They ought to be defending Kupiansk, blah, 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 whatever. You know, they're not capable of making real gains. Those judgments may or may not be right. Uh, I tend to think they're not, but they ought not be expounded, you know, in the press. At the same time, the administration is trying to go to Congress for $20 billion worth of additional. You know, um, material support uh, in a supplemental for Ukraine, because that that kind of background is just undermining their case.
2: So my response will be a little more cagey. Uh, the, the polling shows that the military cues can move, can nudge public opinion, meaning if a military leader says something, it can it can nudge the public in one direction. Or the other. The nudge, the effect is bigger when the military says something surprising and against type. So the uh, a, a military uh, person saying, we're going to go to war tomorrow, <laughs> you know, that, that would be shocking. And so that would have a bigger impact. A m- military person saying, we need to spend more on defense. That's not going to move public needle much. A military person saying, we're spending way too much on defense. We can cut back that would have a bigger impact. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is that th- there is a big difference between military candor in private and military outspokenness in public. Uh, and, the, and I think that was the goes to the heart of what you were just saying, Eric, that I think a senior air force general opining on how long it'll take for the ukrainians to learn to fly the f16 i hope he's giving that view to his senior leaders inside the chain of command because that's a genuine militarily relevant and he's an expert presumably and so he has a an informed opinion on that but the what you're talking about elliot is if you say that publicly now you're part of the information warfare space, you have to be much more careful.
1: I think that, I mean, that's exactly the point. I mean, of course there should be, and in some ways there should be more candor in private than I think I saw. And I suspect Eric, that you saw, you know, it it, it is quite striking how you can see very highly decorated general or flag officers. And when they get to the presence of the president of the United States or even the secretary of state yeah. or secretary of defense, all of a sudden, you know, everything is going swimmingly. Uh, Madam Secretary, uh, just a few, you know, a few hiccups here and there. Let me ask just one other uh, quick one. So, um, General Milley, who's about to retire, who we all know quite well, um, was um, after initially apparently thinking that the Ukrainians would be done in in a few days, sort of changed his view. And then, but then, you know, he gives this is a statement, we're saying, well, it's going to be a long hard slog, and you know, eventually this this should be solved by negotiation. Again, and and I ask the two of you not to weasel, please, Uh, because I I will give a very forthright answer, whether or not the two of you do. Uh, (laughs) Should he have said that in public, not in private?
0: I think it's fine for Millie to say that this, uh, from his vantage point right now, looks like a long, hard slog. That's a reasonable military judgment, period. That's where he should have stopped his comment. To talk about whether it should be a diplomatic solution or not is, to me, that's policy.
2: I'm willing to give them a little bit of rope, but maybe I'm being, uh, maybe I'm pedophaguing and uh, being academic. But every war, even the wars that ended with surrender, require some negotiations at the end. So there was surrender even in uh, Japan and certainly in the East in World War II, I mean in the West in World War II. And if that's what he meant, that at some point the Russians and the Ukrainians are gonna to have to sit down and forge a post war agreement, uh, I think he's right. And I've written on that subject. So I, I do think that uh the war will have to end that way. But if he's saying we need to throttle back the military support in order to put pressure for the um the ukrainians to make a diplomatic concession and you know and thus seek some sort of temporary ceasefire. now he's in the, that's that if that's what was meant that's in the realm of policy and we'll Okay I, I would
1: hit the buzzer on that one uh peter <laughs> because uh, the truth is when somebody like that first he's not talking about the quote unquote negotiations that you know where admiral donitz signs the uh the ceasefire, or the Japanese officials are on the quarterdeck of the Missouri. That wasn't much of a negotiation, let's face it. But, but I think you know the, the the point that I would make is, when somebody of that seniority says something, it is consequential, and and the way it, it almost doesn't make a difference how you intended it to be taken, it's how it is taken.
0: Elliot, just on on that point, look, it's, a, a lot of this, of course, depends on the context uh and, and in a context where presidential candidates are saying you know we have to make the ukrainians you know negotiate or we have to end this with a negotiation it, that kind of comment inevitably plays into a policy debate that that was why i you know took took issue with it i mean I, peter i take your point that you know every war must end right as one of my you know dis- distinguished predecessors has um, as Secretary of Defense for Policy argued in a very, very good little book. Um, but um, I, I think senior officers in general, in my experience, are not sufficiently sensitive to the fact that when they speak as a four-star, there are potential political consequences to what they say. And, and therefore, they ought to err you know, on, on the side of being laconic in their responses.
1: All right. I, I think on, on this one, I am, as the French would say, pure et dur. You know, pure, pure and hard. Let me, I, I to. We're, we're just about out of time. And if, Eric, with your permission, I'd like to shift over to something completely different. Um, our, um, only those of our, our listeners who are students at Duke know that Peter is a fantastic teacher of undergraduates. He's written a book on the subject. Uh, I've taught many of his, uh, his students when they've taken a step down and come into my classes uh, for graduate school. Uh, you really are terrific. And we were talking a little bit before about um, what it's like teaching in the age of ChatGPT. And I'll just um, kind of stick out st- my own position. I play, I'm First, thank goodness I'm retired from teaching. Um, and in part because I wouldn't like to have to deal with this. And having having tried GPT a few times, it's, it has always struck me as a resembling a mediocre, extremely ambitious, um, kind of somewhat sycophantic sophomore, you know, who will dish up anything that you really want. If you say, I, I didn't like that answer, it will say, oh, I'm terribly sorry. That'd give you something else that's completely fallacious also. So how do, you, how do you, and of course, this is just where chat GPT 3.5 or 4. point something. Um, but it's going to be a serious issue what what these models can do. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit to our listeners, some of whom may be students, some of whom may have kids who are students, um, about what what's the world of teaching and learning
2: in this era. Well, the truth is we're still figuring this out and we're going to be we have to f- fly this plane as we build it. Uh, and I'm prepared to f- to hear back that I failed miserably in the approach I'm I'm going to be taking. But there there's broadly two approaches. One is that uh, you build up the wall- castle walls, you widen the moat and you say everything is going to be done hand, pencil, and paper, and in real time, no access. Uh, and I think that's appropriate for some uh, evaluative exercise. I've always done some of that. That's a very real-life situation. So there are times when you are hauled before your boss and asked you know, a question and you don't have any time. You got to be able to answer it in real time. So there's, but I don't think, Uh, You can have all your evaluative exercises in that because one of the most important skills, Elliot uh, and Erica, you know well, is writing. You have to be able to write to work in our business, that when you're working in the national security, they care about your oral and your written expression. And so that requires papers and that opens the door for use and misuse of ChatGBT. I link, liken it to Wikipedia in the early days. I don't know if you remember what it was like, but the first year or two of Wikipedia, it was, you know, a, a, a swamp. Uh, it's it's gotten much better. And now Wikipedia is, you know, a reliable first step like an encyclopedia Americana, you know, that you pull off the shelf and take a quick look. Uh, when did, you know, the battle happen? Okay, that'll give you the, the, the quick answer. In the early days, you couldn't be sure. I think ChatGPT is going to evolve in that same way, and within a few years, our students are going to expect to be able to use it in their post-college employment. Thus, I think it's important that we help them learn how to use it responsibly. And so that's what I'm going to be trying to do this year. Uh, Is there a responsible way of using ChatGPT? You put your finger on one of them, is if you think that the output of ChatGPT is truth, then you are not using it responsibly or wisely because it will make up stuff. Well, I think we need to teach our students how to, how to fact check the outputs of chat GPT. Uh, it'll also, you know, paper over with banalities when you want hard and in, incisive uh, things. Well, first drafts often look that way. I mean, I'm sure that you can think of first drafts you've read that were, uh, pretty mushy and they needed to be tightened up. So I think ChatGPT is going to be used for an iterative process, helping a little bit, but then the human is supposed to improve on what the AI produces and back and forth. And I'm going to try to have my students do it that way and uh, talk to me a year from now. And I'll tell you if I succeeded or failed.
0: I think that Elliot thinks that you're in my answers to his, pop quiz on on who violated you know best practices on civil military relations was filled with the banalities that chat gpt chat would generate
1: but, you guys <laughs> you know while i was asking the question but so.
0: I, you know i we are we are already over time and at the risk of imposing on on you peter there is one last question i just have to ask which is to me the most distressing part of this book the most upsetting part of your book, because as Elliot pointed out, I've, I've lived on, on this divide of, of civil military relations was the degree to which the public is either completely ignorant of, or at odds with what we, in this, you know, kind of rarefied world of experts on civil military relations and military institutions regard as the appropriate norms and guardrails for maintaining, you know, civilian control of the military. Particularly given as you talk about in the book from time to time, the deep suspicion that the founders had uh, for uh, the role of a standing army uh, to democracy. The, The fact that the public is so at variance with those norms frankly, it was one of the things that surprised me more than anything else I read in the book and, and disturbed me more. So what should we do about that?
2: Well, I, I think you're right. I clutched at a straw to say, well, at least the public doesn't want a military dictatorship. You know, there's a range of questions ranging from uh, you know the most pure to the most uh, yeah sully. only
0: 19% wanted military <laughs> rule in your in your survey
2: yeah and it's like okay well that's good news sort of but but you're absolutely right that the public is not a good umpire or enforcer of civil military best practice and so one of the things we have to do is we have to get the military to behave even when they're not going to be rewarded, punished by the public appropriately. That's professionalism. That's what professionals do. And you know, when I'm talking to the military, I emphasize that aspect of it. Don't look to the public as, well, if the public lets me get away with it, it must be okay. No. However, the public ignorance is a function, I think, of two things. One is the growing gap between the American public and the military the passing of the World War II generation, the passing of the draft era, fewer and fewer families have kitchen table conversations with uncle so-and-so about what it was like to serve in the military. That's now a very small subset of Americans who have that personal experience. So what they know, they're knowing from TV, Marvel, the universe, movies, You know, who knows what, where the sources are. Um, and that's, that's a problem. But the second piece of it is the decline of civics education in the country and in particular. And I now I'm pandering to my hosts, but in the decline of military and diplomatic history that taught at the you know K through 12 level, or at least at the high school level. So my students are coming in with much less of a knowledge base just of how the wars happened and how they went and how diplomacy happened knowing the warts and the, the positive aspects. Um, and when you know those things, you have a healthier respect for the military, but also a healthier respect for the limits of the military. And that, uh, I, that, that's reclaiming civics, I think is an important uh, priority. And if we have those civics courses, they can buy my book, on Amazon and OUP and uh, and learn all they could possibly want to know about public confidence in the military. We can uh, all agree
1: on that. <laughs>
0: we can. Our, our guest today has been uh, Peter Fever, professor of political science and public policy at Duke University and the estimable author of Thanks for Your Service, The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the US Military. Uh, Peter, thanks for joining us on on Shield of the Republic. We'll we'll, uh, unfortunately make you come back again in the future.
2: (laughs) I hope so. Thank you for having me.